This is an ABC podcast. If not at 70% and 80%, then when? Would Australia be closer to reopening if the Prime Minister had not failed his two jobs on vaccine and quarantine? Unfortunately, in the background, actions are still proving that they don't get it. Nobody is telling us exactly what's involved in the plan. Australia seems to have left it far too late to help those who helped us. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm very excited to be joined today by... A co-host in the same studio, David Spears, welcome. Hi, PK. Great to be here. Thanks for letting me back in the party again. Soon we're going to be joined by the ABC's excellent foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Jedgetts, to talk through what is a huge week on the international stage. There's a lot to unpack when when it comes to uh, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. Uh, a lot of politics to all of this, which we're going to get into as well, uh, as well as the immediate uh, uh, concerns and decisions the government's taking and the bigger ramifications they have in this region too. Perhaps though we should just you know, tick off a few of the domestic political matters. There have been a few. Before you get into the meat of what's going on on the global stage. Um, we've seen the Prime Minister, oh, look, I'd, I'd say absolutely having a better week than the last couple of weeks in Parliament. When he's out on the road in this, you know, we're still in the official campaign, he's in a much happier place, isn't he? Yeah, he likes he likes not being in the parliament. <laughs> um, look, the parliament had became a really difficult stage for him. Well, really. Particularly those last couple of weeks, religious discrimination. Uh, look, and then last week getting tangled in knots with the security chiefs over um, mm. whether Labor was weak on China and so on. Uh, you, know, you had people crossing the floor. All of that, it's just been messy. Super messy, and uh, the the charge that you know he didn't have a serious enough agenda or hadn't legislated mm. enough, and had left all the problems to the last minute. Look. Clearly, he is more comfortable outside of that theatre, the parliamentary theatre. Um, but he really dipped into some issues this week that I thought were, were a bit interesting. Let's mm. just start with one. Um, and it would have been hard to, for anyone really to move around quickly on the campaign trail on Monday um, in Sydney because the train network came to a grinding halt as a result of a dispute between the state government and the rail union. It was all a bit confusing at the start of the day, but things became clearer. But listen to the Prime Minister's intervention on 2GB that morning. I feel for all of those Sydney siders today, uh, who were affected by this strike? It was, I mean, last just over a week ago, Ben, we had the AMWU um, actually protesting against the AUKUS agreement. So that you know the unions are ramping up. There's no doubt about that, and it's a foretaste of what they could expect. I, I suspect um, with with license from Labor. Whack. There you go. The Prime Minister speaking to Ben Fordham, um, you know, the the scare campaign of if Labor wins the federal election, you'll see more of these industrial disputes. Let's just note that we have since found out that it was actually a lockout. It wasn't a strike action. And the New South Wales government, we're not going to get into that. We're not a state podcast, got into all sorts of trouble this week over the fact that they'd actually messed this process up and it led to this. But really interesting to see the Prime Minister's intervention and other federal ministers too hopping in. Yeah, look, this has been at the state level. And let's not forget, 
there's a Liberal government in New South Wales, a coalition government, uh, and, a, and a coalition government federally, and this strike happens. You know, you can talk about what might happen under Labor. <laughs> this is right now. Uh, and look, yes, for the, the Perrottet government, there are all sorts of knots about what happened there. What you saw from the Prime Minister, though, is the classic example of playing the politics on this and playing it hard uh, when all the facts weren't in and all the facts give a very different picture now very different. of what had happened. But it's it's a classic issue too, isn't it, of you know, not necessarily just one for the bubble. People who don't follow politics at all um, get the absolute pips when the trains stop and they can't get to work. And, uh, you know, this, this affects everyone across Sydney mm. on that day. So you can understand the level of anger and the, I guess, the appeal for the Prime Minister to turn it into a political attack against Labor. Mm, if only it were true. Um, that was the issue that, 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 you know, the facts didn't really lead to the conclusions he came to. I heard Susan Lee, others too, sort of blaming the unions. Anyway, that, that goes on. But what it allowed the Prime Minister to also do, which is a bigger narrative, he's trying to build at the moment is to describe uh, Anthony Albanese as the most left-wing leader since Gough Whitlam. Um, He's made much of his membership of the socialist left faction. This is the increasing uh, language that we're going to hear around Anthony Albanese, kind of painting him almost like a Bernie Sanders here. Is it working? Well, I I think the government needs a bit more evidence, a bit more meat to back up this argument. And maybe that will emerge as we start to see more of exactly what Labor might do in the in this case, the industrial relations space. But so far, they I don't think under Albanese have left as much wiggle room as under Shorten when it comes to the prospect of pattern bargaining and some of the claims and things that the ACTU wants to uh, wants to introduce. So look, you know, yes. Anthony Albanese is well known uh, of the left faction of Labor over many, many years. You can see why the Prime Minister wants to bring that up now and portray him as someone of, of the far left. But I don't think it's fair to accuse Anthony Albanese, sure, from the left faction, but a lot of the positions he's taken, particularly as leader, I mean, you know, backing in stage three mm. tax cuts, backing in the government when it comes to in its... F- in fact, if you look at practice, not factional allegiance, mm. you would have to say that based on just policies that Bill Shorten, who is of the right faction, had more left-wing policies. Well, negative gearing, franking credits, um, certainly a more ambitious climate uh, policy, all of these things, you're right, Uh, Albanese far more in the centre when it comes to policy than his right faction. uh, Well, so far as a leader, he's been a massive pragmatist. He has, you know, and his eyes are on the prize and that, you know, you can criticise it for being too centrist, too small target, all of those things. Uh, But yeah, I, I think to pull out the um, left wing uh, card on Albanese. Yes, he is of the left, uh, but I don't know if you'd call him the most left leaning um, leader since Gough Whitlam. No, in practice, um, not not convinced that's what his agenda has offered this far. But you know, they're trying to make us think that there is a secret agenda. That's what this is all about. Look, the other thing that happened this week, which is actually incredibly significant is we saw an audacious bid by the tech billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks to take over energy company AGL and to close its coal generators by 2030. He spoke to me on RM Breakfast about what he said would be one of the biggest decarbonisation projects in the world. Here he is. I've long long said that decarbonisation is the greatest economic opportunity facing Australia, but it requires vision and action, right? And what Grok, along with Brookfield, are doing to purchase uh, uh, 100% of AGL in, in our offer is to take that action. 
So the initial $8 billion bid was rejected. The federal government, though, wasn't a very big fan of it, David. Uh, and, of course, Mike Cannonbrooks is trying to keep it on the agenda mm. and he's, he's pushing it still. Um, what was the federal government's response to this one? They looked pretty uncomfortable with this idea uh, from Brookfield and Mike Cannonbrooks. They keep stressing the Prime Minister and Angus Taylor, uh, talking to you as well, uh, saying that Brookfield's the main partner here. We're dealing with Brookfield. I don't know what their issue might be with uh, Mike Cannonbrooks a very pro-climate agitator in the uh, and, and also third richest Australian. This is a fascinating bid. And yes, it's still got a few hoops to get through. First and foremost, finding a price that's going to be suitable to uh, the AGL board, has to get shareholder approval. They're still, you would assume, going to come back with further offers above the $8 billion initial offer. Then you've got regulatory approval from the ACCC, the energy regulators, the federal government, though, may well have to make a call on this, and this is where it gets fascinating. Probably not before the election, probably after whoever's in power. But do they give the green light or try to block this sort of takeover, which would shut down more coal-fired power, uh, certainly all of AGL's coal-fired power, within this decade, by 2030? Now, this sharpens this whole climate and energy debate it brings it back to the fore, I think, in the election contest, because you've heard the Prime Minister this week saying, we've got to sweat those assets for their life. He means run them full schedule, don't close them any earlier than is scheduled right now. How does that play in some of those seats where Liberals are trying to cling on against independent, pro-climate independent candidates? I think this is fascinating. Fascinating for Labor too, who haven't really weighed in uh, I don't think very um, definitively on this proposal either as to whether we should really bring forward these coal closures. The the federal government, you're right, very uncomfortable about this proposal. And look, it's been knocked back at this this stage. Mm. I think the argument the board also made was that it was undervalued. Yeah, undervalued. And they also said it was too accelerated, the coal closures. So they don't think it's viable. It comes down to, I guess, a pretty technical argument as to whether you can close them down, replace them with renewables and batteries without a price spike. Now, the regulators will say, sure, the reliability will be there, but what about the prices? This is where Angus Taylor's convinced prices would shoot up. Uh, AGL is, is indicating that as well. Mike Cannonbrooks has a very different view. Mm, he says that it would actually drive prices down. That's That's his take. Look, David, let's just now get to everyone's thinking there's only one yarn in the world right mm. now, and, and they're right, which is what's escalating in Russia and Ukraine. We're recording this on a Thursday morning. Um, there could have been a further escalation by the time that you listen. But let's talk about exactly what, what was announced on Wednesday, because the Prime Minister said Australia will join the UK, the EU and the US to impose sanctions on Russia as punishment for the Kremlin's action to move troops into Ukraine. This includes travel and economic sanctions against Russian banks, institutions and individuals, including Russian politicians and oligarchs. This is what the PM had to say yesterday. They're behaving like thugs and bullies, and they should be called out as thugs and bullies. And quite sadly and tragically, the sheer force of that violence of a thug and a bully is about to be uh, impacted upon the people of Ukraine. So very tough words from the Prime Minister, the bullying of Russia um, that, that we're standing up to. But David, and we're going to get into this a lot mm. more with our guests, all of the specifics around this, but don't we look like we're walking into a car key election? 
Yes and no. Well, uh, more yes than no. But to what to what degree is it going to be a khaki election? I see some making comparisons to two thousand one, right, where you had uh, certainly the the um, Tampa issue, and then September eleven, mm. and that absolutely made two thousand one a khaki election. It brought Howard back into the game. He went on to win the election uh, despite being well behind Kim Beasley before all of that uh, happened. Now. There are differences, though, I would say. September 11, you remember it. Everyone remembers it. Um, We all felt terrified that this was going to be visited on our shores. Uh, Now, you know, this sort of terrorism. Rightly or wrongly, I mean, it's horrible what's going on in Ukraine right now, but I don't know if there's the same level of personal fear in the electorate in Australia about what's about to happen. Um, Yes, there are consequences, and we'll get to all of that Mm. with with Stephen uh, in a moment. Um, but I, I just, I just, we're I'm not, not convinced it's 2001 that we're looking at here. Um, Australia is playing a, a role, but we're not a major player. We're, we're following rightly what's happening with the sanctions from our major allies, the US, the UK, and so on. But I don't know what you think. Um, there's no difference either between the two sides on this, where Beasley did. Uh, you know, stop short of backing uh, all of the asylum seeker policies that Howard rushed through after Tampa. Uh, on this issue, certainly Ukraine, and you could argue with China as well, which Morrison is um, making no secret about linking when he talks about thugs and bullies. Um, Albanese is making sure that he's right in step with Morrison on this. Yeah, and he's he's got his uh, foreign affairs spokesperson, Penny Wong, back out now with him. Uh, Penny Wong is a very measured voice on these issues and has not left any shadow of doubt about the position too. So they're in lockstep. And it'll be very hard, I think, for the federal government to exploit differences, although they will try, I think, broadly on the national um, security agenda. And it makes it more difficult because I just think the comparison with 2001, uh, you know, I understand why it's being made, but I I think the differences are actually pretty key. And and they're great. Um, You know, we sent troops to Iraq and Afghanistan. We sent khaki, uh, you know, across the the other side of the world and, you know, plenty of opportunities for the Prime Minister back then to, um, you know, be seen with them here, to visit them there, all of those things. We're not about to send troops this time around. We're talking about financial sanctions that could go further and we'll unpack that, but um, you know, it's it's not the same as actual khaki. It isn't. Let's bring our guest in. <laughs> Stephen Jedgetts is the ABC's foreign affairs reporter and he joins us in the party room. Stephen, welcome. Hi, PK. It's great to be with you. Great to talk to you, Stephen. No one better to explain what's going on at the moment. Uh, when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, perhaps we do need to go back to 2014 because a lot of what's happening now relates to events around that time. Listeners may, in fact, remember a certain Prime Minister named Tony Abbott promising to shirt front Vladimir Putin at that year's <laughs> G20 summit. Um, something else that happened, though, was Russia basically annexing Crimea. Yeah, that's right. So this is, uh, there's so much. I mean, I'm going to try not to give too much of a history lesson because you can get really into the weeds here. But 2014, Russia basically annexes Crimea. Now, if you think about Crimea, Crimea is basically a uh, rhombus of land, if you like, which is at the very bottom of Ukraine, pointing into the, the Black Sea there. Now, Like these eastern regions of Ukraine, which have been so contested over the last few years, these are, it's basically a Russian speaking area, right? It's, it's a part of the the country 
which has always been dominated by Russia, that Russia still sees as part of its natural territory. Uh, and in 2014, Putin goes in and takes it. And, I mean, it's, it's not quite the same to the situation that we've got now. There are a few differences. But this is all part of Putin's vision of Ukraine. He sees Ukraine as part of what he has referred to previously as Greater Russia. And the problem for Ukraine is that he also sees vast swathes of it, perhaps even the whole country, as part of the Russian hinterland. Now, Putin can tolerate Ukraine having a level of perhaps uh, formal independence, but what he can't tolerate is it having real independence. And that's really at the core of what we're we're confronting today. So when when, when, uh, he did that in Crimea, uh, sanctions were applied. Yeah. Did they work and how similar were they to what we're talking about this week? So the sa- well, the, the sanctions that were applied then were pretty sweeping, uh, but they are they weren't nearly as targeted as uh, targeted as the sanctions that we seem to be contemplating right now. So what's happened since 2014 is that a whole lot of countries have put in Magnitsky laws. Now you might remember Magnitsky; uh, he was a, a Russian lawyer uh, who was working for Bill Browder, an American financier. He basically represented him in a complicated dispute and then ended up in jail. Uh, and and then he was killed. Now, exactly what happened was a bit of a mystery, but he's since become uh, a bit of a paragon of the human rights movement. And there have been this suite of sanctions, which have now been, or laws rather, that have been passed in a host of countries, the United States, the United Kingdom, most recently, last year, Australia, which are basically called Magnitsky laws. And they are designed to target individuals, in particular, individuals individuals who are responsible for human rights abuses uh, or individuals who are who are responsible for particularly egregious crimes now the 2014 sanctions that were imposed i mean they were imposed on some individuals but they were a bit more broad based what we're looking at this time around potentially uh, are a series of very sweeping uh, sanctions which are very tightly focused on members of the kremlin on oligarchs in Russia who have close ties to the Kremlin uh, and towards anyone who might be seen to be profiting within Russia from the potential annexation uh, of Donetsk and Luhansk or perhaps even a full-scale invasion of, uh, of Ukraine. So what we've got at the moment, though, is just the first tranche, right? And this is what's so complicated because Putin is engaging in these salami slicing tactics, you know, moving, recognising these two regions, then moving so-called peacekeepers in and then potentially mm. moving them into the rest of these rest regions. Um, It's hard to pick what the trigger point is for full sanctions. So what the United States, what Australia, what the UK, what the EU is doing is that they're going to impose sanctions in an iterative fashion. And that's what we've got so far. We've got pretty modest sanctions on the table targeting members of the Russian Security Council, but we are likely to see much more broad-based sanctions targeting more people, including oligarchs, if Putin goes further. And Scott Morrison has admitted, um, we're recording this on a Thursday morning, but that the sanctions against Russia will have a minimal impact on uh, on really on having an impact on, on Putin. So there's an admission really that they know these Western leaders, including our own prime minister, that this level of sanction actually probably won't achieve much, right? Yeah, I, I mean, that's probably based less on an assumption that these sanctions will, will be ineffective or that they won't hurt. Because let's be honest, like if the US and the UK and Europe in particular go really hard on sanctions, they can do immense damage 
to Russia's economy. Like some of the things that have been contemplated um, would essentially amount to, to locking most Russian companies out of the, the US-backed financial system, right? Uh, mm. but if, you, if you ban them from using SWIFT codes, which is one of the things that's been you know, contemplated, that would have a, have a really crippling impact. Uh, and Russia's already copped significant economic pain uh, with the, the cancellation of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline um, that's been halted by Germany. So it's not that these measures can't hurt. It's, it's that the Australian government and the US government have come to a conclusion, rightly or wrongly, that Vladimir Putin has made up his mind, that he is determined to press ahead despite the economic pain that can be imposed uh, by the West. And one of the things that they might be factoring in is that Russia has massive foreign exchange reserves mm. at the moment. It's built them up over the last 10 years because the gas and oil market has been going gangbusters. They've been exporting huge amounts. And Putin has been very consciously building up these enormous reserves to give himself a buffer. And that's one of the reasons why I think Morrison and others are saying, look, this will hurt Putin. But if he's really determined to press ahead, he's going to press ahead. Yeah, something like six hundred billion dollars uh, or so, and the, I yeah, think, I think it's five fifty or something. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty much that. Yeah, 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 around that. What's the risk that these sanctions from the West will drive Russia closer and closer economically in a trade sense to China? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question, um, and, and that's that's what the the opponents of sanctions uh, have argued. Look, all you do is you give. Putin a reason to cling ever closer to China, uh, you inevitably, even the most targeted sanctions do rebound and have an impact on the broader population. They cause people economic pain in the broader, in broader society. That is only going to bolster Putin's legitimacy further. Um, there are reasons that some people are very sceptical about sanctions, but in the eyes of the West, or at least Western leaders, they feel like they have to do something. They have to impose some sort of penalty on Putin, even if they believe it's largely fruitless, in an attempt either to slow him or to provide uh, an example to other people in the world um, and other rulers, perhaps ones without, for example, a vast nuclear arsenal and hundreds of billions of dollars in foreign exchange reserves, uh, mm -hmm. that there is a consequence for this sort of behaviour. Uh, but yeah, I think it's very plausible. Um, you know, it, it, it very likely is driving him closer to China, though exactly what China makes of this behaviour is a really interesting and separate question. Mm. Look, I want to just analyse the sort of bipartisanship, if we can, on this, Stephen, because Labor, and we were noting this before, David and I, when we were hanging out alone at the start of the podcast, as we do before we invite you into our party, <laughs> um, and what, what we were noting was that, uh, in fact, Labor has been, you know, in lockstep with the government on this issue, but also on the broader issues around China since the government was ramping up its rhetoric. The coalition has been trying to tie Labor to China, saying they're weak on national national security and that Anthony Albanese is the Chinese government's pick at this election. Um, has, has this latest dispute kind of led to the, the Morrison government really kind of dialing that back a bit? Not yet, I don't think, but I wonder if they will. Um, so you're right. I mean, what we've seen over the last two weeks is the government, uh, and I'm sure you've discussed this, and I know, in fact, you've both discussed this on multiple programs before, is the government weaponising national security in a political debate. Um, the government believes that Labor is weak, and not only that, they believe that there is political capital to be made there. But that's all been about China. Um, 
we haven't seen similar rhetoric from Morrison yet on Russia. And, you know, to be honest, I mean, there's, there's, there's barely a cigarette paper's width difference between Labor and and uh, the coalition on, on Russia. Anthony Albanese came out yesterday, uh, said that he, quote, well, I think he said he wasn't looking for an argument or wasn't looking for a fight with the government on Russia, that they are 100% uh, behind uh, the coalition. Um, obviously, Labor not only believes that what the coalition is doing is broadly based the right thing to do, but they also are conscious that it's probably going to be popular uh, and that trying to split from the coalition uh, on Russia policy is going to win them absolutely, you know, no friends in the in the broader electorate. So we haven't yet seen Morrison attack Labor for weakness over Russia. It's hard to see what he'd base such an attack on. But it will be really interesting to see whether in this moment of genuine crisis or a potential crisis in Europe, whether Morrison and Dutton in particular dial back some of their rhetoric on China and Labor um, because of the genuine anxiety uh, in the broader Australian population about exactly what on earth is going to happen with Russia and Ukraine. Uh, I I don't know if that's going to happen or not. It'll be interesting. The the, the one angle the Prime Minister's had uh, on this in relation to Labor's position, I think, has been... um, funnily enough, to do with China. Now, the Prime Minister's been making the point that China needs to go harder in sending a message to Russia about his actions. I think we've got a little bit of it here. I have noted that China's language in in the course of the past week has improved, but I'd I'd welcome them going the full distance um, and joining ourselves in the United States and the UK and and the EU and Canada um, and so many other countries that are announcing what is occurring there. Yeah, and look, I think his position too was Labor should also be saying that China needs to be also saying something about Russia. Yeah, look, that's got right. A little, little bit convoluted. Yeah, it um, got a bit. What, it got a little bit messy. But he's trying yeah. to tie it into the China question. I, I guess Labor's bipartisanship on this um, is a whole lot easier because sanctions aren't exactly the same as um, committing a deployment of troops. Um, Australia's not about to do anything, of course, without our, our partners. We've made a clear troops are not something under consideration. But I guess a lot of people are asking. Why and where is the, where is the red line on this for Biden in particular? Um, is is the prospect of any sort of Western military deployment here completely off the table? And why is there no red line here yeah. for Putin? Well, I I think, and I am not an expert on this point, but I've read a lot of a lot of material on this, and the assessment of of people who are very close to the the White House on this and who follow this really closely is that there is no prospect of a Western or at least a US-led intervention in Ukraine, that Biden is absolutely dead set against it. And he said the same thing in public. Um, it was a, Gosh, it was a, a few weeks ago, perhaps even five, five weeks ago or so, uh, during an interview, someone asked him, well, would you consider even sending American troops in to rescue any Americans or dual Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian-American citizens on the ground? He said, no, absolutely not. I will not do that. I will not have a situation where you have Russian and American troops facing off, even under the August of a rescue mission in Ukraine, because, you know, it's a nuclear armed power and it could escalate. So Biden has said on the public record that he is not willing to risk a shooting war in Europe between Russian and American troops, because both countries have vast nuclear arsenals, because America is not confident that Vladimir Putin wouldn't resort to the use of both conventional force, massive conventional force, and potentially even nuclear weaponry. They're they're conscious of the risk of this spiralling. And Biden, his instincts, 
every instinct that we've seen in his presidency lead him away from foreign interventions. We saw that in Afghanistan um, and we're seeing that again in Ukraine. So Ukraine, no. But let's ask a slightly different question. Let's take the most alarmist um, you know, sort of proposition at face value. There are some people, I, I personally don't believe this is at all plausible, but there are some analysts saying that Putin, if he does take Ukraine, might look at other ex-Soviet states, maybe even Soviet states that are now NATO members. Now, that is a nightmare prospect because if there's an attack, and this is very, you know, this is very hypothetical, I don't think it's likely, but if there is an attack on another former satellite state, as Tony Abbott has predicted, um, that is now a member of NATO, then that is an entirely different proposition because then your treaty obligations are triggered. And then the United States and other NATO countries are obliged under Article 5 to respond with force. Now, that is the real nightmare prospect. Um, and that's a very different question to Ukraine. The reason that, that Biden is not contemplating war with Ukraine is because it's not a member of NATO. There are no treaty obligations. And, yeah, and when we think about whether this is all a template for what China might do in Taiwan... Um, I'll tell you, we're getting it, even it, darker it gets, now. It gets, it, gets, uh, it gets even more complicated. I want people to enjoy their walks and runs, guys. We're going to have to park <laughs> it. In our, let's not go to our own region quite yet. Hey, Stephen... Thank you for allowing us to mine your enormous brain. No, no don't be. That's very kind. Thank you very no. much for having me. Um, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Terrific analysis. Thanks, Stephen. Cheers. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for our question time, and this week's question comes from Luke. DeSoma, who writes, do photo ops work? Are voters actually persuaded by images of the Prime Minister washing hair, welding, playing the ukulele, or is it just about getting on the telly and in the papers? I bloody love the show. That's my favourite line of the question, which is not a question, it's a comment. I'll take it, though, and enjoy it. Um, David, do the photo ops work? Well, I would say photos and images are incredibly powerful, um, now, you know, as much as you and I would like to think the broadcast alone can uh, can decide the outcomes of elections and influence voters, images are hugely important. Now, I'm not saying that the staged photo ops always work to their advantage, but my point is images, I mean, you think back, whether it's Latham crushing John Howard's hand, um, Tony Abbott in his budgie smugglers, Malcolm Turnbull in his leather jacket, uh, Scott Morrison trying to shake the hands of bushfire survivors, images can really define leaders. Now, they, they want with these photo ops to define them as best they can. It doesn't always work out that way. What do you think? Yeah, I think that people mock the Prime Minister for the photo ops, right? And I understand where that narrative comes from, which is, I suppose, a critique that they, you know, some people who are probably critique, critiquers generally of the Prime Minister think he's too busy doing that, mm -hmm. not busy enough doing the other stuff, right? But actually... All leaders, whether it's the Prime Minister, opposition leaders throughout history, have staged photo ops. They try and, you know, you need to get on the news to sell whatever policy or story you have. And, and if that story is a particular policy, you kind of want pictures to match it. Because actually, there's another part of this, which is that the news media is desperate for the imagery. You know, you need mm. to fill the story with some images. Uh, it's not just of the Prime Minister speaking and being, you know, boring. I think, though, for Scott Morrison... This is an image problem for him that he's seen as 
too much into the pictures and not enough into, you know, the hard policy work. And that is a broader issue. And I think that's becoming a critique that's sticking a bit for him. And I think the worst one, and they know it in, in among his people, I've heard it from all around the round the sort of table from all the, the Liberals I've spoken to, was the, the washing of that woman's hair. It's interesting because... That, it, that was a bad one, right? Like, he just looked, why are you doing yeah, this? Why I, are you washing this woman's hair? Like, it, why are you there? He's really bristled at the criticism of this as well. I've heard him asked a couple of times in radio interviews, and he says... Well, hang on a minute. Uh, you know, I, I I do the welding with the blokes, or you know, hammering the this and that. Um, why can't I show what an apprentice hairdresser? You know, try and show that I'm getting a better understanding of what they do. I, he seems to be suggesting there's some gendered or sexist mm. criticism as part of this. Um, I don't know if that's it. I I just think generally all that stuff of I don't know pretending to normalise yourself. And he does it more than a lot of political leaders have tended to do. Um, whether that still works today, I'm, I'm just not sure. Yes, it provides the TV pictures, but... You've got to provide them. It's it's just the way that the system works. Uh, but do, do you? I mean, Anthony Albanese, I think... He provides them too. Yeah, no, I, I think far less than a lot of definitely political leaders I've less. seen. He's, definitely he's not comfortable less. pretending to you know, wield a hammer or a saw. Don't you reckon? Yeah, you're right. He doesn't do it any any anywhere as much as, as Scott Morrison. But during that the election campaign... That might hurt him. I don't know. During the election campaign, I can... And you know it because you've worked on so many campaigns as I have. Yeah. Right now, Labor is also um, designing, you know, a campaign strategy for yeah. every day where he will be. He, he has to do it too. Whether he wants to pretend to be the tradie or the hairdresser, yeah. probably I think, not. I think more likely to be sitting down with nurses, sitting down with aged care workers, chatting with people showing that he is empathising and understanding and talking and listening to people. I think that's the sort of stuff. You that... don't need to get on the tools, do you? Maybe not. Maybe not. Well, that's it for The Party Room. Send your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet us using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. Remember to follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. And we'll be back in your feeds again next week. Together, actually, David, you'll You're be with have me, me back again. again? Yeah, no, I like you. Looking forward to you'll it. You'll be back. See you, David. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.